Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, OnScript listeners, welcome back to the land of biblical scholarship where we are nerdy and unashamed. I'm Matt Lynch, along with co-host Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, and I'm sorry to say it, Drew Johnson. If you haven't already done so, please go on over to our website and sign up for our mailing list. And hey, share the word while you're there. Um, Also, if you haven't given us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen, please take an extra couple minutes to do so. And if you do, um, I guarantee that you'll feel good about yourself for doing so. Uh, Okay, in this episode, we have Matt Bates with Josh Jipp, who is back on the show, um, having been with us think about two years ago. So here we go. Hello, OnScript listeners. Welcome to a new episode. I'm going to start with a quotation that reflects hospitality. We're going to build a wall, and Mexico is going to pay. And the reason they're going to pay, and the way they're going to pay, Bob, is this. We have a trade deficit now with Mexico of $58 billion a year. The wall is going to cost $10 billion a year. That's what it's going to cost. It's going to be a powerful wall. The quote, of course, Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States. Hospitality, thinking about strangers and strangers in our midst, big topic of conversation. Today we're going to be speaking with Professor Joshua Jipp of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Josh has been our, our guest for OnScript previously, speaking about his book, Christ is King. Josh has an exciting and timely new book out with Erdman's, Saved by Faith and Hospitality. Well, Josh, you agreed to hang out with the OnScript community again. Hey, Matt. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Hey, well, we appreciate uh, being our guest not just once, uh, but twice. Um, I'm going to lead off with the mother of all questions with regard to your book. So we're starting huge. This is the this is the single question that is doubtless most pressing to all OnScript listeners. And indeed, I might add the question that is most pressing to all thoughtful global citizens. Are you ready? I'm ready. Right, you're sure? I don't know, but what can I say? Okay. So why, Josh, didn't you title your book Salvation by Allegiance Alone and Hospitality rather than Saved by Faith and Hospitality? That's a really great question. Um, I, I would say it's probably just that my my intellect is not quite as sharp as it could be, and so I just missed out on that title. Or or it could be that I had read a pre-published manuscript that already had that title, and I thought maybe maybe it wouldn't work to just sort of, you know, uh, mimic that other book. I can't remember who wrote it. Well, um, it has a really nice you know, ring. With my I mean, own title. Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And yeah, hospitality. Yeah. Doesn't that sound better? Yeah, it's, it, it, it is pretty amazing. Right. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. All right. Well, you settled on... Maybe I'll write a part two and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get allegiance in there. That's so, good. Yeah. Well, you, you wrote a, a less interesting uh, title, a very interesting book, you know, Saved by Faith and Hospitality. But all right, Josh, I have a second question that is no less pressing then. Um, your book is about hospitality, right? That's correct. And, and what it means for Christians to show excellent hospitality to others. That's correct. All right, so in light of your book's thesis, when I wanted to visit Chicago this past summer, I asked if I could stay with you. Uh, why 
Josh, did you say no? Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is only kind of true. It's I don't only, it's, it's only kind of true. There was a. I, there was a. There was this, this video thing that Logos wanted to do, and I, I was pondering coming up to Chicago. Oh yeah, and, I was on vacation. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, and, uh, if you if you read enough uh, books on hospitality, you will you will realize that uh, there are some limits to hospitality. Or maybe maybe I was taking into account uh, the title of your new book and. Um, I just wanted to be, you know, following some of the, uh, you know, just some of the the teachings about how to treat itinerant uh, itinerant teachers who may have a dangerous yeah, message. Yeah, there's there's I, some warnings about that in the Didache. Thanks for reminding me of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in the Didache, there's some stern warnings about, uh, especially uh, you know, itinerant uh, uh, preachers. I, and kn- the I knew you were going to want to stay more than two or three days. <laughs> yes, uh, for for sure. Um, no, actually, I think the truth was you were out of town, which you know, I, I mean, I don't know if that's legit or not, but you know, I I, I thought I'd, I'd give it a pass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice question. Yeah, good, good. These are tough. Yeah, these, these are, are hard. we're starting out with the, the really important existential questions. Um, right. All right. Well, uh, let me introduce our guest properly. Then um, Joshua Jip is an inhospitable jerk face. Uh, you know who won't even let people stay at his house in the summer um, when they want to. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Josh uh, Josh Jip, uh, pro- associate professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, or TEDS. Uh, Josh completed his Ph.D. at Emory University in 2012 under Luke Timothy Johnson. Josh also holds a THM from Duke Divinity and an MDiv from TEDS. Josh is the author, in my opinion, of one of the most important recent books on Paul's theology, Christ is King, Paul's Royal Ideology, which was Fortress Book in 2015. And uh, that was the subject of a previous on-script discussion with Josh. So if you haven't checked that out, you should go back. Uh, He's also uh, published his uh, revised dissertation, Divine Visitation and Hospitality to Strangers, in Luke-Acts. So this is a continuation of the hospitality theme that goes back to his original dissertation interests. Today we're discussing uh, Josh's book that uh, is titled Saved by Faith and Hospitality. Well, Josh, isn't hospitality primarily about hosting dinner parties, you know, and stuff like that, listening to some groovy music, uh, firing up the barbecue, having some appetizers and, you know, some uh, some drinks, eating a good meal around a table, <laughs> you know, and then having some dessert afterwards. Right. This is all pretty straightforward, isn't it? So why do we specifically need a theology of hospitality? Yeah, great question. I, I often ask uh, people or students, and I might be discuss- uh, talking about this theme with, what comes to your mind when you think of hospitality? And uh, certainly there are uh, plenty of instances where, um, uh, just exactly what you've described is, uh, some of the first things that pop into people's heads, but yeah, uh, hospitality, um, uh, trying to take our bearings from the Bible and the ancient world, uh, has to do much more with protocols for how we, uh, engage strangers, uh, how we engage or are engaged by people that are either not part of our kinship group part of our family network, part of our ethnicity. There could be a variety of ways in which uh, today or back then um, space, uh, hospitable space can be created whereby people that are strangers don't know one another or maybe the differences, the apparent differences may be what defines them, uh, are enabled to come together 
um, and perhaps, uh, if things go well, move from a situation of uh, uh, unknowing one another, uh, not knowing one another, or being uh, being a stranger to one another, to a uh, potential friendship, or even, in some instances, actually uh, family and kinship network. Uh, so I, I usually try to emphasize that hospitality, an important part of it, is uh, ha, ha, um, has to do with in engaging and being engaged by strangers, people that are different from from us. Does that have anything to do with dessert? <laughs> it can. <laughs> okay, that's good. Uh, yeah, that's good. So, so I would say, yeah, frequently um, in the Bible, we see that often a big part of this has to do with food, with drink, with shelter. Uh, um, uh, we bestow or receive the um, basic necessities uh, of life um, that are both uh, necessary for just uh, human existence, but also provide sort of the opportunity. And conversation can be a, is, was certainly a part of this too in the ancient world, um, but are the means whereby uh, one um, uh, 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 one receives sort of the the, the kindness. Uh, the comfort, um, uh, the sense of home um, uh, from uh, another person. So in that regard, <laughs> yeah, dessert, dessert can certainly be a All part right, of it. Good. Um, so you're providing a theology of hospitality in this book, and you're obviously um, a biblical scholar, so you're doing some detailed readings of specific texts, and we'll probably get to some of those. Um, you also give some general guidelines for overall you know, sort of best practices in the church uh, with regard to practicing hospitality. But you, you do stop short of making specific suggestions for public policy, and uh, obviously this is uh, the topic of um, welcoming the stranger is something that is um, uh, at the forefront of public policy discussions. Is there a reason why you stop short then of um, of going that further length to to speak into that area as well? Mm, yeah, yeah. I, there there is a reason. Uh, one of them just has to do with if, if you don't mind me starting out by saying kind of my own uh, reasons for, uh, writing the book the way that I did. Um, I, I knew like what would be easiest and most comfortable to me would be to do something along the lines of a biblical theology of hospitality, just trace the themes, um, of hospitality, the way that they permeate, uh, different aspects of our scriptures. Um, but I wanted to do more than that. Uh, I wanted to, in, in part, um, I think what really excited me and interested me was thinking about in what ways are these hospitality texts sort of making claims about who God is, about what the church is, about how we conceptualize and think about our own identity, um, how we uh, think or engage people that are different from us, uh, how we ourselves enter into um, uh, uh, the disposition where we can be guests and receive hospitality from others. In other words, I was really interested in thinking about this a bit more ethically. Um, uh, and so as a result, what I wanted to do was um, uh, still provide sort of the exegetical theological engagement of the hospitality texts, but do so in such a way that I was trying to uh, answer if not answer questions, at least put these texts in conversation with things that every Christian or most North American Christians are thinking about or should be thinking about. How do I relate to my possessions and wealth? Uh, what do I think? I mean, your first quote that you started off from President Trump, uh, what do I think about immigration and how do I uh, um, 
uh, yeah, how do I think about immigrants and immigration, refugees? Um, how do I engage or uh, relate to the religious other? Should I? Should I not? Uh, are there limits? Are there boundaries? Um, uh, some of these sorts of uh, questions that I thought would be um, maybe hopefully more helpful to at least provoke uh, conversation, uh, stimulate people's thinking about how these texts actually um, uh, have a place uh, in the arguments um, that we're already uh, having in public life or in church life. Um, that said, uh, I didn't feel necessarily competent to um, then move from text to things like, here's what we should be doing in terms of public policy. Um, I, I felt as though that might actually undercut some of my argument. Um, and I have already had a couple of instances where people have been, even though I've tried to stop short of public policy, uh, where some have been concerned about, well, you, you know, this would be the direction you're going. And um, my desire has been, listen, any person who is um, believes that the scriptures are the word of God in some way, believe that uh, they are conceptualized themselves as disciples of Jesus, uh, are involved in a local church, these texts should be pressing them, shaping them uh, in certain ways. And I try to give some uh, some guidance for directions that that might go. I also try to give some guidance for what is clearly not Christian, certain kinds of xenophobic practices, tendencies, and so forth. Um, but I stop short of public policy as a means of primarily trying to provoke conversation. Uh, and uh, it's it would certainly be stepping out of my own um, training and uh, knowledge to start to do that. Um, but I'm encouraged, you know, just real briefly, and then I'll stop. I'm encouraged to see other books. I think of Matthew Kamink right now, who's uh, has a book on hospitality, Muslims and immigration, whose training is, I think, uh, more in ethics and public policy to uh, to engage um, hospitality, but do so in such a way. Um, to do so in such a way that he he also has his eyes on what this might mean for for law and public life. So yeah, that's a that's helpful clarification. Is I think you certainly do more than just a biblical theology or read specific texts. You certainly do what we might call you know true theology or kind of a second order synthesis beyond just sort of a biblical theology. Um, yeah, but you you do kind of stop short of I'm usually saying this means our you know, uh, the United States immigration policy, uh, uh, policy should be X, Y, or Z. Um, and you're right, it's probably wise to stop, uh, to stop short when you, when you know that you're running out of your expertise. Uh, although uh, others like me sometimes, you know, uh, tread in where, <laughs> uh, where angels fear uh, and, uh, yeah. and uh, are willing to talk about any and everything. Um, so we have to we have to be careful, um, and I think that uh, think that you show some wisdom there. Um, now you've personally been involved in a variety of practices that um, would in, would be in the direction of hospitality and promoting solidarity with others. And of course, you know when you're writing a book on such things, you have to be careful as you don't want to come off as if you're you know boasting about your. Uh, own capacity in that direction or your excellence in displaying hospitality. Uh, but at the same time, it's important to, um, you know, to sort of um, to, to leave the book pockmarked with some of those um, stories and experiences, which you do a little bit of um, as, a, as a way of illustrating um, what you're talking about. And I was I was personally um, I enjoyed the, the, the moments in the text where you did that and was hoping uh, you could do a little bit more. And I'm going to I'm going to just read a little bit from your page 10. Um, uh, and to sp that speaks to some of your experiences and, and ask if you can illustrate maybe with a story or two. 
All right. So um, on page 10, then, um, after you, you, you talk about uh, your dissertation writing process and uh, your wife, Amber, uh, praying that God would use your research uh, for the church in some way, uh, that you found uh, that you uh, were more and more uh, impressed with the, the Bible's vision for how to deal with the stranger. And uh, here picking up then um, uh, w- with uh, the bottom of the page, it says, this coincided with my opportunity to co-teach a course on introduction to the Bible at the Women's State Prison in Atlanta. At the same time, my wife and I had been leading a small group of about 15 to 20 young adults at our church in Atlanta. We met together to read the scriptures, pray, share meals, and serve together at local ministries. At, the same, at this same time, my wife and I had built a meaningful but challenging friendship with refugees through world relief and had developed real friendships with students involved in the Muslim Student Association at Emory and were participating in a local ministry to the urban homeless in Atlanta. So there's a, a number of things you were involved in, a, a teaching ministry at a women's state prison, uh, a small group a fellowship uh, that uh, was involved in um, some multicultural uh, opportunities, uh, working with refugees and, re- and world relief, uh, and then at the urban homeless shelter. Those are some rich experiences. Um, how about, can you share a story maybe um, from uh, one or two of those experiences that, have, uh, that were important to you in um, thinking through this book? And uh, maybe it could be an, a, a story of success or failure or whatever it might be uh, in working to bridge to the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, oh, I could talk about different aspects of all of those um, uh, stories and experiences. Um, I, I suppose, you know, one just maybe I'll just use this one because it's a very mundane um, uh, sort of experience. Um, but uh, my wife uh, was we, we, we were at a PCUSA church in Atlanta and um, the pastor had asked my wife um, if she would be willing to um, start a young adult small group, which they hadn't had much success. She was doing some part time work for them uh, for the church. And um, so uh, for a couple of weeks, um, we invited, you know, just anybody that looked like they were in their 20s or maybe early 30s or something. And. Uh, to come over to our house, uh, actually our little apartment, and, um, you know, try to start a little small group fellowship. And I remember, you know, we were surprised when we had crowded into our small apartment before we had kids, and most all of us at this point hadn't, hadn't had children yet, but um, uh, crowded into our tiny apartment. And I remember looking around at all of the people that were there, uh, 15 to 20 of them, and thinking, this is never going to work. Like, we are... Uh, from different socio, very clearly, like very different socioeconomic sort of um, uh, brackets uh, in terms of our income. Uh, our interests are remarkably different from like very blue collar to uh, blue collar to white collar to grad, st- me being a grad student and a couple of other grad students from uh, Emory and Georgia Tech. Uh, uh, even just, I remember even just thinking the way we dress is, is too different. Um, uh, you know, and what happens, you know, fast forward six months later is that basically, uh, a group of, uh, of strangers, people that did, didn't know each other at all, uh, that gathered together in our home to, um, uh, to read the scriptures, to pray, and then usually to engage in some form of service and eat. Uh, we ate together uh, every week, um, and what happened was that that food, that time of sort of sharing food together at the beginning for a good, you know, fifteen minutes, turned into 
people bringing really uh, wonderful, delicious food, and it turned into a good 30 to 40 minutes of our time together um, of us just enjoying each other. And very clearly, we turned into a family um, that lasted. I mean, they many of them still meet together, but you know, it lasted my uh, our five years that we were in Atlanta. You know, to the stage where when uh, our cars were broken down, we knew we had family. Even though we didn't have moms and dads or cousins that lived in Atlanta, we always knew that we had family that would help us out with our car problems or uh, broken dishwashers uh, or uh, people needing help to move from an apartment into a house or uh, bringing meals to one another uh, when we had kids or being there uh, when you know we had loved ones that passed away or, uh, and we were grieving. And so at the end of it, you know, none of us were related to each other, but it was sort of the, the shared space together, uh, in, uh, in each other's homes, eating together, reading the scriptures, whereby at the end of the time, it was, you know, that was family for, for us. So that would be a, a very mundane, uh, but positive example. Oh, yeah. um, that's, a, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's uh, like sort of like a biblical utopian vision right there. Of, uh, yeah, I mean, and there were, we, we have I mean, those there, moments. I'm sure there are negative parts too. <laughs> oh, I'm you know? sure there were. Um, it was real life, uh, but uh, but but at the same time, I mean, it's sort of like you know, hopefully none of them are listening to this point at this point. You know, but at times I would say to Amber, still like, man, I just I just don't have hardly anything in common. Still, you know, just in terms of like what I think about or I read or what I do, but like that's my family, um, and uh, you know, we we love each other uh, as a result. Um, uh, I, an, another example would be the, you know, we adopted, uh, we uh, entered into a relationship with a world relief family from Iraq. Um, uh, uh, they had uh, come over here seeking asylum as refugees who had helped out our military. Um, uh, and, um, boy, I mean, the positive, I would say we, we were the guests, um, pretty much all in every instance in their home. And the positive would be uh, we um, uh, were clearly treated with such respect and honor and kindness. Uh, and I, they had very, very little money, um, as you might uh, imagine. We're used to a higher uh, level of income and um, would, I don't know how to describe it, but would sort of take their little income and their really kind of cheap uh, food that they had, but would uh, cook it and decorate it in such a way that they would try to, you know, really just bestow kindness and honor uh, upon us in terms of giving us really, you know, a, a remarkable kind of feast. And um, uh, 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 and as a result, you know, and my wife and I were able to learn a lot more about them as individuals and their uh, uh, their children were able to learn more about Iraqis, um, uh, and their love for, for their people and for their land, uh, were able to learn more about their own, uh, uh Muslim religion and faith. Um, there were also challenges in that relationship. And, uh, we, uh, challenges in terms of, you know, uh, what are the limits or the boundaries, uh, in terms of our, uh, relationship, um, how much are we able to give in terms of our own time? Um, uh, how much of our own money, uh, was it appropriate or were we, uh, comfortable to give at times to help them, uh, with some of their own challenges and their own needs? And maybe when was that, you know, when was that not wise? Uh, uh, so there were certainly challenges, um, uh, in that really, you know, in that, uh, hospitality relationship, 
uh, as well. But um, uh, but yeah, the, those those would be a couple of couple of examples. Maybe the most powerful one for me was the prison one. But I'll just yeah. leave it at the leave well, it at those two for now. Well, so. yeah, these are so good. I don't I don't even want to leave them as I, I like to hear these sort of practical illustrations. Maybe we'll get a chance to circle back to the prison. Um, but let's. Uh, you sort of like you were sparking all kinds of things, you know, in my mind uh, with, you know, other, with, with with regard to your book. And I want to make sure we get to the details of that some, too. Um, you were sort of sparking some things from your fourth chapter there um, as you were speaking about the necessity of being a good guest. You know, and that's oftentimes whenever we think of hospitality, obviously, we position ourselves as um, as the host and those who um, have something to give to other people and that being what it means to be fundamentally Christian. Um, w- one of the things you really do effectively, and I think this was an important part of your book, is to show that there's a biblical model for being a good guest. Why is it so important that we learn how to be good guests and not just good hosts? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I, I sometimes reflect on actually most of my experiences that are really memorable, uh, or at least probably more of them have to be with me being a guest than they have to be uh, to do with me being a host of someone else. Um, I think, well, let me, let me say, let me expand on that. And then I'll say some of the texts that talk about it. Um, when you are a guest, uh, uh, you yourself are opening yourself up to risk. Um, uh, you're opening yourself up to the other as you're entering into their territory, their turf, their home, uh, their uh, environment where they're comfortable and where someone else maybe wields the power that you don't. And therefore, exactly, they have power and control. And as a result, you're the dependent. You're the one um, that adapts or assimilates or and maybe, you know, remarkably dependent upon your host uh, to care for you, to show kindness to you, to, um, uh, to, to, to protect you, to make you safe, whatever it may be. And so... Uh, maybe it's for that reason that the ones that really stick out in my mind are instances where that was the case. And I was a guest, uh, in someone else's, uh, turf, I think too, maybe just as a white man, uh, in the United States, you know, it's, um, uh, I, I'm not constantly forced to, uh, displace myself. Um, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm used to being in a place where like my whiteness and my gender, uh, don't force me to ever sort of recognize, um, uh, to deal to some extent with my gender or my ethnic identity. So when I'm in a guest, uh, in a, a guest in another, uh, culture, context, church, whatever it is, um, that displacement or, uh, my lack of power and control is highlighted and exposed. Um, and I think that can be, you know, it, it, very healthy and good, uh, good for us, um, in that regard. So yeah, the biblical texts, there are a few of them I talk about. Uh, do you want me to talk about those or was that not part no, of the No, go ahead. I mean, I, and I think yeah. that one of the things you do mobilize the biblical text for is to show that this is actually can connect to evangelism too. I don't know if you want to move in that direction, but that was um, something at least that was in my mind. Yeah. So, so just briefly, I mean, first Corinthians nine, Paul, uh, if, if person that's listening remembers Paul's argument in first Corinthians nine, it's within the context of a lot of food that he's talking about in first Corinthians eight through 10. Um, and I, I think it makes most sense, um, that when Paul then, uh, in first Corinthians nine is saying, uh, I become all things to all people, uh, to the Jew, a Jew, to under the law, under the law, apart from the law, apart from the law. I do all things, as he says, as a means of trying to gain others 
uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and the only context that I've been able to uh, figure out where that is a um, acceptable, even virtuous thing to boast about, as opposed to right something that's actually kind of offensive, like, really, you're a chameleon, you adapt and assimilate your character and whatever environment you're in, that generally sounds negative. But um, it makes sense within Paul saying within the household, within uh, houses, I, I act as a good guest, um, not as I just simply compromise my beliefs, uh, my commitments. He's uh, clearly saying he does so as a means of trying to communicate the gospel to others. Um, but he adapts himself to their his host's particular way of life, to their eating and drinking practices, um, and presumably doing their exactly what Jesus uh, said to do in Luke 10 to the 72 when he sent them out and said, proclaim the kingdom, eat what's before you, drink what's before you, right? Uh, heal the sick that are there. Um, uh, but they themselves are commanded to be, uh, to essentially function as good guests in these households as a means of proclaiming the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God as well. Um, yeah, I think that's beautiful. I think sometimes we can we can think that being a good guest means that we're not a burden on somebody at all, right? That we we bring all the the self sufficiency that we possibly can, so that we don't really need to put out the host, you know, uh, on our behalf. And I think that's mistaken. And I think Jesus's wisdom in sending out uh, the twelve, the seventy two, you know, and and causing them to be dependent on others. Um, actually opens up a space for the gospel to be received as we're weak before other people and we allow ourselves to be served. Um, to a degree, we are allowing them to begin to, the host gets an opportunity then to act self, in a self-sacrificial way and even to be, begin to put on the character of Christ in so doing, right? As they get the opportunity to, um, to serve as the host, to take on the Christian character of self-sacrifice, it opens them up to, to the message of self-sacrifice in the gospel as they've just had the chance to experience it. Here I, put, here I put myself out as a host for other people and serve them, and how did that make me feel? It made me feel wonderful that I was able to offer something to somebody else, and then now I'm in a position to hear the message about this being the very nature of God. Mm, right. Yeah, that's great. I Just real quick to go back to one of the stories, the Iraqi family that we were uh, uh, developed our friendship with, We, um, when we would go to their home, which was 90% of the time, we would um, experience just the, the, especially the wife's, but the husband as well, but especially just the wife's joy uh, in terms of hosting, serving, um, uh, seeing us enjoy, you know, their food, explain, explain the food that we were eating. And I remember then Amber and I thought, you know what we should do? We should have them over for, uh, uh, to celebrate her birthday. Um, and that was the first time they came into our home and it went fine. Um, but it was so clear that there was much more joy, uh, for them when they had the opportunity, uh, and the dignity to, uh, serve, you know, in a, in a, in a land probably where they exerted very little power, um, and authority and control, um, uh, as, you know, refugees seeking a political asylum here. Um, there was certainly much more dignity, joy, uh, to engage in that sort of hosting and service, um, than there was to, uh, uh basically come into our home. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, uh, some great personal stories. I think that, um, that unpack, and we've gotten into the book a little bit with chapter four. Um, kind of circling back to the beginning of the book, your chapter, your first chapter is food stigma and the identity of the church in Luke Acts. 
um, and you do a lot with the motif of the Messianic banquet uh, and um, some larger themes that have to do with God's hospitality. Um, what are we supposed to, as Christians, take home from this? Um, as why, why does the motif, for instance, of the Messianic banquet matter uh, for a theology of hospitality? Mm, yeah, I mean, so one of the things you see in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is constantly eating with people, um, uh, and um, he... Uh, uh, I, I understand him to basically be eating these little messianic banquets with sinners um, uh, and providing space, sort of creating that sort of hospitable space uh, for people that were on the margins, but really all people. I mean, Pharisees are included in this as well in terms of eating with Jesus, but creating sort of the hospi hospitable space for all people to, as they eat together with the Messiah, to encounter the saving presence of the king and the kingdom of the God, uh, the kingdom of God. And as a result, um, it's often through those meals that Jesus shares with others that they then move um, both vertically uh, from one who has been transformed and has repented and has taken on the message of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And then one who ver uh, horizontally um, is also publicly declared and shown um, despite whatever their identity may be, uh, a sinner, uh, a non, uh, a person who was not following the Torah with the rigor of the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, a woman with perhaps questionable moral character, uh, a tax collector, whatever it may be, um, that person vertically or horizontally is publicly declared to be part of God's family. Uh, and to belong uh, to the kingdom of God. So I see um, there's a sense in which that messianic banquet that's talked about frequently in Old Testament and uh, Jewish literature of God preparing a table uh, for his people, um, uh, a table of joy and nourishment uh, and uh, and a table where God's presence is known that he, Jesus is in many ways sort of eating these little messianic banquets, um, sharing his presence, creating the hospitable space where they can encounter him, the kingdom of God. And as a result, um, uh, uh, experience, uh, you know, reconciliation with God as well as, uh, reconciliation, uh, or public declaration that they belong to God's family, uh, before others as well. So do you think in light of the sort of the messianic banquet motif that in the age to come, will we still need to, uh, as Christians, know the art of being good guests and good hosts, or are we beyond that in some way? In the eschaton? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it. I, I don't know. It does, you know, Isaiah, there are... Uh, Pass you know passages like Isaiah twenty five that seem to continue right the uh, and and uh, throughout Revelation as well in terms of uh, eating and drinking together with the Messiah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure uh, if uh, if 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 there will be sort of the same ethical implications in the messianic banquet or not. But it's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know either. But uh, it does. It's hard for me to imagine there wouldn't be continuity there. As I suppose like food and fellowship are so intimately related, you know, that um, one would think that perhaps there'll be an ongoing kind of cyclical um, nature of being a guest and host in some way still in the, in the age to come. Well, something to ponder for sure. Um, all right, you ready for a speed round? I have a, I have a, couple, speed a couple speed rounds okay. for you. All okay, right. all right, all um, right, okay. So here's your first one, and uh, the idea is you get like 15 seconds to answer or something. You know, you, you don't even get to defend your answer. You just have to tell me your answer. 
Um, all right, so first one. Uh, if you could eat a meal with anyone in the world, other than me, of course, who would you choose? Uh, that's still that's still alive right now? I guess so. Um, let's say uh, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Um, are you a big Dylan fan then? Yeah, I, I I enjoy his music. I don't I don't as much get into like cult followings of anybody as much as I used to in uh, high school and college. But uh, uh, so those some of those days are long gone. But well, my take on uh, Dylan, great songwriter, dude can't sing. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of the charm. It, well, char- it's, it's charm actually, is it's one actually way to, worse in concert. <laughs> charm is one way to describe it. Um, his shows are worse than his. Yeah. Uh, but but by that I kind of mean better anyway. Uh, what's what's a trend in society that scares you? Uh, yeah, I mean, in light of this conversation, I would say uh, um, making xenophobia xenophobia uh, sort of uh, culturally acceptable. Uh, something that is uh, uh, almost like I have to tolerate it. What's the most important theology or biblical studies book of the last fifty years? <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot you. Asked did I did I already ask you this one in our previous not, interview? Not oh, me, not okay. me. But I've, I've heard some of your other. Yeah, uh, the most the most important to me, or just the whole no, field? no, the whole field, not just to you. Yeah, this is a tough question. Yeah, um, probably Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Right, going with a little E.P. Sanders. E.P. Sanders. That that wouldn't be the one that has been most influential on me. But if I had to pick one, just in the field, maybe that would be the one I would pick. Yeah. I well, I, I sometimes I, you 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 forced me to shade the question one way or the other. I, it could have been to you, but um, but uh-huh. it made me choose. So for, I just went. So for for me, I would say it would probably be Richard Hayes's Echoes of Scripture oh, in the gosh. letters of Paul. That, that might yeah. be. I don't know. I have so many, but that one certainly had a huge, huge impact on my own scholarship, too. No doubt about it. And certainly love Richard Hayes' work, too. Uh, great, great answer. What's something you find embarrassing? I probably should stay out of the realm of politics, right? But pretty much anything our, our president says right now is, is, is likely to induce some significant embarrassment on my part. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, does intelligent alien life exist elsewhere in the universe? I think it probably does. What did you eat for breakfast this morning? Uh, I had a granola bar. Just a just a bare granola bar. Just a. <laughs> well, I don't put frosting okay. on it. <laughs> well, you could. Yeah, just a just a bare just, granola bar. Just a naked naked it sounds, granola bar. It just sounds dry. It sounds dry going down. Did you wash it down with some coffee? Well, I, I. Yeah, I drank okay. some coffee with right. it too. Well, I, yeah. I don't have time to like. Yeah, I don't really have the discipline to like sit down and eat a breakfast. Can you imagine like eating a bowl of cereal anymore? Like actually sitting down, pouring the cereal, putting the milk I, on it. I don't do that. Who has no, time I don't for do that? that very often, but I do occasionally, and um, I do have a favorite. Um, it is Love Crunch. You know what I'm talking about? No. no. Well, find out. Find out. Go discover Love Crunch, okay. dude. You will thank me. Okay. You will. Okay. Next time you see I me, I probably won't. I probably won't. But um... next time you see me, you will tell me thank you if you do actually try it. Okay. <laughs> All right. The odds are not yeah, good. Well, try it. Find it. Um, all right. So uh, your chapter two, Josh, is especially concerned with difference and division in churches and how this relates to hospitality. Um, can you synthesize what the Bible teaches about difference and divisions in our churches into something short and pithy and maybe even clever for us? 
Uh, okay, that's a lot of things. Short, pithy, and clever, well, and you sympathetic. Just, you can just um, settle for one. If you if you can't be clever right now, we'll forgive you. <laughs> I'll go for the synthetic part. Yeah, so the argument of Chapter 2 about dealing with um, uh, uh, difference and division in Paul is trying to look at what are the theological strategies whereby Paul tried to um, bring unity uh, in his ecclesial contexts uh, out of um, people with different gender, socioeconomic background, patron, clients, all kinds of different social identities. And I guess uh, if I had to summarize it very quickly, it would be to say um, uh, that Paul tries to create a common in-group identity um, that is uh, uh, we are all those who have been grasped by the hospitality of Christ. Um, to use the language of Romans, uh, we have been welcomed by the Messiah, uh, Romans fifteen seven, or uh, in First Corinthians eleven, we are those who all partake of the same meal. We all eat the supper of the, our Kurios, uh, our Lord, who has uh, embodied uh, his, in this meal. Um, we are uh, committing ourselves then. Uh, to the singular group identity, uh, namely uh, what I describe as recipients of Christ's type hospitality. As a result, what is most fundamental about me uh, what, and you and anybody uh, today and the church or in Paul's churches is that this is the primary definition of who they are. They are one for whom Christ has died. They are one who has received Christ's hospitality. Christ is the one that has welcomed me and them uh, to the glory of God, extended hospitality uh, uh, to us, to the glory of God. And as a result, um, social difference in the church continues. This isn't an argument for some form of colorblindness. Uh, Social identity in the church continues. We're still male and female. Uh, In Paul's churches, they're still slave and free. Uh, There's still different socioeconomic backgrounds and contexts. Um, but we do not, uh, we are not called to relate to one another or to privilege one another primarily out of their wealth uh, or lack thereof or out of their slavery status in the ancient world or their free status within the church. Uh, we are called to uh, think of one another, respond to one another um, out of uh, a common recognition that, again, uh, our identity is rooted in Christ's hospitality. And that means then, since Christ's hospitality has been rooted um, or has been demonstrated, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Romans 14 and 15 has been uh, demonstrated in the cross in someone who has sacrificed, who has given up of his own rights. This also then doesn't mean that, well, we just all assimilate into whatever the dominant group Um, uh, the majority group sort of culture is, it also means that there is a constant concern for those that are are in that majority group uh, context to to, to sacrifice their own rights, to engage in sacrificial service for the other, to empower, to lift up the person whose uh, conscience or whose rights or whose uh, good may be apparently being trampled on by whatever the dominant gender or ethnicity, or uh, socioeconomic group, whatever it may be. Um, so anyway, that, that's in a nutshell, that's in a nutshell uh, what I'm trying to argue in Chapter 2. That's great, and there's there's so many different paths that you sort of um, spark off in terms of uh, directions that we could go with that conversation, everything from communion to uh, church practices. Let's go uh, maybe to the church practices 
um, as we think about this in the contemporary context. And you know, it's a, it's a it's a slogan and a truism that Sunday morning is still the most segregated day, uh, you know, in our nation. Uh, sadly. Um, and um, I think that everybody realizes, um, I think, who is a thinking Christian uh, today and many people who are church planners and who are uh, church program, you know, level people, pastors, uh, whatever it might be, uh, they all would like to create a multi-ethnic congregation. I think there's a desire for it. Um, what are some of the things we should do to promote this? And, uh, and you've also already begun to spoke, speak about a common pitfall that you address in the book, sort of the assimilation of minority cultures to the majority. Um, how can we avoid this? So what are some of our be- best practices and best safeguards? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question and uh, challenging. Um, and I'm not a, uh, um, you know, in the first instance, obviously a, um, uh, a practitioner that's sort of crafting the worship service um, week in and week out. But um, there would be a few different things I would say. One would be, uh, let me just say some of these really quick, self-awareness of one's own culture, uh, one's own sort of predilections for like, who are you? Who, I, I'm obviously white. Like there's no, there's no getting around sort of like I'm a, I'm a white heterosexual uh, male Midwestern sensibilities. So um, the first, right, if you have any desire to engage people that are different from you, I think the first thing that is necessary is reckoning with your own identity, uh, your own culture. And there are a lot of books, um, uh, more books I'm encouraged, you know, now, uh, now that are coming out that are helping, especially white people try to do this. Um, uh, but that would be one thing that I'd say first is necessary. Um, second thing would be uh, learn from other, learn and promote uh, um, other um, uh, people into spaces of worship and leadership who are not part of perhaps the majority culture. And do it early. I mean, do it earlier than later. Like if it, if it, if, if basically you establish a group or um, uh, a church, like it's going to take and the, the the DNA of the leadership um, f- pretty early on. I think in those early days. And so if you don't do this early on, it's going to be much harder. But um, if you if you are wanting to reach uh, a person, a, a people group, or people that speak another language, have a different culture, um, then to me it just seems uh, silly and ludicrous if you aren't actually um, sharing power in a very real way. Um, and I'll just use the language here of not just using maybe I should use language. Um, you know, people that might not be safe, like be apparently sort of like, they might push you, they may have a prophetic voice, they may uh, ask you to do things that are really uncomfortable um, uh, in terms of the songs that you sing, the way that your, um, uh, uh, your worship service may have a particular flow, uh, the way that you pray, uh, just a lot, certain values um, that may not be your uh, uh, values in the first instance that may may rub you the wrong way or may be difficult. But so that would be second, just uh, empowering very early on um, and sharing leadership uh, with uh, people who are not part of your gender culture group, uh, w- uh, whatever it may be, uh, would be a uh, would be a second uh, would be a second sort of thing. Thirdly, I would just say. Um, in a, you know, stretch yourself outside of your groups, your coalitions, the books that you read, um, to uh, uh, just to read, think, and um, uh, learn from people that are um, 
uh, not immediately part of kind of your, your comfortable kind of, uh, your network. Um, and just listen, I would say too. Mm -hmm. Uh, those would, those would be, those would be a few, a few of the things, um, I would say in terms of at least values. Yeah, that's helpful. I think it's, it's really important to kind of, um, get some practical, a payoff for your book is there is a lot of practical wisdom there, and I think that um, you do a good job sharing it in the book and, um, and sharing it here for us now. Um, we've already touched on your fourth chapter a little bit um, where you speak about um, what it means to be a good guest. Another thing you speak about there is the dangers of tribalism. Obviously, this is becoming more acute each day in the Trump era. Um, here's my question then. How, how about those who – uh, lean to the political right in general. Um, they're kind of right-leaning. Um, and so because they're right-leaning, they're reluctant to be overly critical of Trump, you know, for fear that that might cause people to think that they uh, support the left's agenda. And they're like, no, no, I definitely am not, you know, supporting the left's agenda. But I'm also very hesitant about Trump and especially some of his rhetoric uh, as it would pertain to, to the topics of hospitality uh, and whatnot within um, the Christian framework. Um, how... How do we navigate that? Uh, how how can we, um, as as Christians who want to support the biblical theology um, of love for the immigrant uh, and welcoming the stranger, um, how can we counteract um, that sort of Trump rhetoric uh, without at the same time um, moving to the left or having people think we're moving to the left, or do we just not need to worry about it? Uh, what's your uh, what's your remedy? Yeah, uh, oh, that's a few dif few different thoughts going through my mind right now in response to that question. I think I think any Christian, I I I I, I don't care what you, whether you lean to the right or you lean to the left or you think you're you know just uh, hardcore moderate. Um, I just uh, I, I I I do not see any um, uh, reason why. Um, just radical sort of any kind of xenophobia uh, doesn't dis deserve um, prophetic critique and criticism. And I, I, and I don't want, you know, I don't, I don't at this point want to even go into like all the details here, but anything that uh, is a statement or is a policy that is dehumanizing um, of other people, like actual human lives, like just needs to be called out blatantly as, uh, uh, as evil uh, as godless, as unbecoming of uh, uh, a president um, uh, of, of our country, and just not just for our president, but for any human um, to engage in those kinds of vilification of other people is just godless and evil. So, uh, you know, and I, I, I mean, whether you're to the right, you're to the left, you're a moderate, like that just, just should be, I think, sort of like base level standard. The Bible just simply does not tolerate uh, fear of the stranger um, uh, that works together with stereotypes that are dehumanizing, uh, of, of other people. Um, the second thing I would say is, um, there are all kinds of, uh, again, there are all kinds of ways we might talk about this from public policy perspective, but there are also all kinds of ways in which we might just think about how can the church be mobilized to, um, be a community of, hospitality host guest relations with others and you know incarnate that in its whatever local environment 
the church may happen to find itself. Now, sometimes this is going to, sure, there are going to be instances uh, where y- you might get into sort of the political political ramifications of this. But I, I would, in, uh, secondly, just say churches should be thinking about how can we creatively and strategically um, extend and receive God's hospitality uh, from those who might be marginalized or stigmatized in our own community. Who are they, first of all? How can we build relationships with them that have a reciprocity of sort of guest host um, and enter into their community, invite them into ours uh, in such a way that we learn, we mutually benefit, uh, we mutually help one another, um, that in many ways can avoid necessarily... Um, and I'm not saying we always should avoid, but at least in a lot of these best pra- like practices don't don't require us to uh, um, have public policy sort of define whether or not we can we can do get involved in these kinds of relationships. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it does absolutely. And um, you know, um, the title of your your book we discussed previously, uh, "Christ is King," right? Um, would, would sort of say that that has to be our primary loyalty, um, and that whether we le- we lean to the right or the left uh, is somewhat immaterial. Uh, whenever we see that Christ's kingship demands certain things of us, um, a difficult thing to negotiate, of course, is whether or not one is in silent being. If one is silent, if they're being complicit in some way, the degree to which an active calling out is necessary. I think clearly some of it is right as um, as resistance involves some sort of activity, right? Um, so uh, yeah, uh, thanks for nuancing that for us. Um, well, we're starting to time is flying along here, and I, I have a couple other things I want to do. I want to the speed rounds are so much fun; it's just irresistible. I want to squeeze another one of those in, uh, and uh, and then uh, maybe a couple a couple closing questions for you. So are you ready? You ready for your second speed round? Yep. Um, who's your favorite mother or father of the early church? Um, probably Athanasius. Athanasius, solid. Can you sing a song for me right now? I can, yeah. Let's hear it. Uh, what song do you want me to do? Any? Okay, I'll do okay. Um, I want you to choose. Yeah. All right, ready? Yeah. Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. With yellow feathers in her hair and her dress cut down to there, she would merengue. And do the cha cha. <laughs> nice work. Do you know that song? Yeah. Do you know that song? Uh, is that from Hamilton, <laughs> or is it from like that? I don't even. I have no idea. So it's, it's, it's a, the Copa, it's Copacabana. I um. Oh, Copacabana. Students okay. here at Trinity. Yeah, yeah. Some some people may know that that may be a little bit of an inside joke, but yeah, it's Copacabana. Yeah. Barry Manilow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, Barry Manilow. Ah, no, I I, I don't know it. Um, I should probably, but you sung it well, way better than I would. Well, I I've had a lot singer. of practice. Yeah, it, it involves karaoke. <laughs> I'm not trying to brag awesome. or anything, but yeah, yeah. Well, karaoke karaoke machines need to multiply in the world. It would make it a better place. It would. All right. Um, so uh, the scariest thing about growing older is, um, let's see, the scariest thing about growing older, I guess maybe having to uh, curb my eating. Uh, um. Yeah, just knowing that my metabolism isn't always gonna isn't always gonna be what you know what it's been. Yeah, that could be inhospitable too. You could be a bad guest if you actually curb your metabolism. Um, if someone might be offended, <laughs> if you're not eating your right. food. So something That's to consider. Why I haven't done that um, yet, but you know. okay, ready? Uh, so, can you really slam dunk a basketball while wearing a Santa Claus suit? Yes, I can. As long as the basketball <laughs> hoop is seven feet and a half. I can't really do that. 
That picture uh, actually th- those... actually came from uh, you 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 referenced the beginning of the at the beginning of the book when my our our small group in Atlanta would um, uh, serve at a urban homeless shelter and uh, so one year I dressed up like Santa Claus uh, and um, uh, you know for the kids and then uh, they had a little basketball hoop for the kids out and back and we play I I played basketball dressed up like Santa. And one of our members is like basically a professional photographer. He got on top of the, uh, on top of the, the backboard and took a picture of me dunking the ball. Yeah. Well, if you're not a Facebook friend with Josh, you know, then uh, you're missing out on this picture. You better friend request him soon. And Josh is hospitable. He'll um, accept your friend request undoubtedly. Uh, he's so hospitable. In fact, I noticed that on page 11 of his book, he gives his email address. Mm. Uh, so, you know, mm-hmm. if you're looking, uh, if you're looking, uh, if you're an internet scammer and uh, you're looking to spam out some stuff, um, you have Josh's email address right there. Josh will probably be getting all kinds of letters from uh, Nigerian princess uh, princes, ho- ho- hoping that you'll deposit money, you know, on their behalf, or from you know this or from that. Yeah. Uh, so those are tricky. Yeah, all that, right. Yeah, that may be yeah. that may be coming okay. in your in your in your email inbox soon. Um, yeah. Okay. So, and uh, if uh, if I was to come over to your house for dinner, then uh, this is a speed round question. If I was coming over to your house for dinner and you were trying to be maximally hospitable, uh, what would you serve me? Oh boy, I don't know your tastes. I don't know. I don't. I, I would have to get to know you a little bit better. But um, oh man, my wife. We both cook, but she would probably. She does the meal planning and would probably do a better job at this. Oh, come on. Um, Don't cop out. you got to tell me. What are you going to give me? I'm, 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 I'm actually deciding whether or not I'm going to try to get a dinner invitation from you in what, the future. It wouldn't really be hospitality because we're already friends. So, you know, I'd probably just uh, maybe, maybe, get some, uh, maybe get some chicken from Mother Cluckers, our favorite restaurant, and French fries and, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't Okay, I'll, I'll consider that offer, and then I'll think about someone you know who might offer me steak, and I'll, I'll try to decide you know what's better. All right, it'll be hard. It'll be a hard. Since hospitality is not on the line, though, it's it's okay. You can choose what you want. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Um, so one of the uh, leaving the speed round and going back to regular questions here, um, I'm going to read a quote from your your chapter one, and this is sort of an issue that I think um, is on my mind as I try to navigate how to put your book into action. Might be on other people's mind too. Um, this is from your page thirty nine. You say the church shares in Jesus's table fellowship among sinners when we together are known as friends and allies of tax collectors and sinners, the mentally ill, transgendered persons, and current and former prisoners, and all who suffer. Uh, So here's my question, then. What are the limits of that friendship as it pertains to repentance? Now, um, specifically, if we, you know, follow Jesus's model and we're hanging out with all kinds of people, welcoming them into our table fellowship, uh, and uh, nevertheless, this person is an outrageous sinner in some way uh, and refuses to repent, what how do we navigate that as Christians on the one hand with regard to church membership and, and also just on the level of personal friendship, are there limits to that? Um, and, uh, how do we find them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it I think it, it does. Let me go back to the ministry of Jesus. It does. Uh, I think there is sort of a theology of repentance that is, um, at work, uh, in Jesus table meal meals. I mean, it, it is use the, uh, instance of Zacchaeus. Some have argued that they don't think there's real repentance going, going on there that he didn't need to, but, um, I have not been convinced by that argument. Um, I think Zacchaeus gives a good example of one who, um, 
uh, here's the call from Jesus. It's time for me to eat in your home today, Zacchaeus. Verse 9, uh, he, uh, the next thing that's said is after they share um, a meal together, um, salvation has come to this household. He's a son of Abraham. And Zacchaeus, of course, makes financial uh, restitution um, for those that he's defrauded and uh, even goes uh, above and beyond. So his encounter with divine hospitality has elicited then uh, a transformed life um, uh, uh, such that he himself now becomes an agent of whatever generosity, justice, hospitality to others as well. And so, and so I think like the call of the scriptures is not just, I mean, I'm not arguing that the ministry of Jesus just sort of sanctifies then, uh, these meal practices just sort of sanctify, um, you as you are, or, uh, as one who is, um, uh, uh, well, okay, divine hospitality has been enacted towards me. Uh, Jesus eats with the sinners, and therefore uh, I just stay as I am. Um, I think there is both sort of like, well, no, the divine host- the encounter with Jesus, successful when it's successful um, uh, in the Gospel of the Luke, uh, Gospel of Luke, it actually within it like transforms that individual to be a new kind of human, a new kind of person. But so um, if it's unsuccessful, though, if this uh, encounter hasn't happened or doesn't seem to be happening, is there a point in which you cut off fellowship? Well, I think certainly there are limits of, uh, uh, there are limits and there are boundaries uh, of hospitality. Um, for, uh, these texts aren't, necess- aren't always popular, but um, passages in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, there are certainly limits uh, of hospitality, if uh, if one um, encounters the hospitality of Jesus, but remains one who economically exploits other people, then uh, there's something about that person's encounter with Jesus uh, that either uh, is fraudulent, or they themselves, I think, have not understood. Here are actually here's actually what right here's actually what you're committed to when you eat the Lord's Supper. You cannot eat the Lord's Supper. And then basically go out and create social divisions based on hierarchies of who's more valuable and less valuable. If you do, you're no longer participating, right? He says you're no longer actually participating in the Lord's Supper. Um, it's crazy language uh, to us that they're not discerning the body. It's crazy language that as a result of that, some are getting sick and dying. But presumably, right, what is happening is... They are uh, taking the sacred hospitality meal in the Eucharist, um, but then ethically in their lives are going on oppressing, exploiting, shaming, humiliating uh, those of a lower socioeconomic class. Um, and Paul seems to be pretty clear. When you do that, you're not even eating the Lord's Supper anymore. Those are your own private dinners um, uh, uh, that you're eating. Uh, and so, I, you know, uh, I, I think... Um, any practice of hospitality, I don't usually lead with this, but it presumes that there are certain limitations, there are certain boundaries. Otherwise, there's no such, ho- uh, there's no space to be welcomed into or to be included or to be included into. Uh, now, you know, I, I will say uh, some people's minds, it's really easy just quickly to go to sexuality, uh, maybe because that's where Paul goes in First Corinthians 5 and 6. Um, uh, but there are, uh, a variety of other, um, exploitative, uh, uh, there are a variety of ways in which, you know, I mean, I, I've been 
I guess in my mind, thinking a lot of economic practices uh, he, uh, that are also not congruent uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ and his hospitality. Um, and it's going to require individual churches um, to uh, engage um, in sort of some of the difficult work of communal discernment um, to figure out what those boundaries, what those limitations are, uh, how do I, uh, and, and how do I still honor this uh, individual? Um, uh, well, let me just, let me just leave it yeah, at that. No, that's, point. that's good. I, I think it is a very complicated issue. And, you know, we, we deal with the same thing when we're trying to, you know, think about someone who's a leech and who's just, you know, taking a, a gross advantage of hospitality um, without seeking to be empowered through it or changed by it in any way as uh, they can be a suck on time and money and energy. And it's, it's hard to know um, as Christians how we respond to that um, in Christ, right? And I think we all struggle with that. Um, it, everyone probably has, you know, an uncle uh, who's a troubled soul of some sort that uh, this had to be navigated with or something like that. Uh, we did in our family, and it was a, a, a constant struggle for my parents to know um, how to respond to the situation and um, something that I have to think through in my own life. Um, well, uh, I, we're, we're about out of time, um, so maybe we just have time for one more thing. Um, and the last thing that I wanted to do is to give you a chance to circle back. You had a story you wanted to share about, um, uh, about your teaching ministry in the Georgia Women's Prison. Um, uh, you want to close with that? Is that a suitable closing uh, point for us? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, just, I only taught one class there, and I remember when I was asked by Jenny McBride, teaches at McCormick Theological Seminary to do this, you know, I, I thought, well, yeah, maybe I, I guess I could learn, you know, maybe I'll learn a little something and challenge myself and uh, get outside of my uh, privileged uh, bubble of, of Emory and so forth. Um, and, you know, I went and uh, um, I remember uh, I had a lot of fear, maybe as you can imagine, like entering into, a pri you know, the prison where the, uh, the guards, I'm sure there are a lot of good prison guards out there, but at least the ones I encountered that uh felt like on a power trip, even with volunteers that came in, uh, not enacting just sort of like basic human kindness to me as a volunteer, let alone one of the prisoners, uh, that increased my fear and then worried, would I be able to relate to these women? Uh, how would they treat me with respect? Uh, would it be, what was I in danger? Would, could something happen in there and the prison go into lockdown and I get stuck in there, which actually did happen one time. Um, uh, but uh, to make a long story short, I mean, you know, I I, um, I don't want to glamorize or, or sort of glorify sort of the experience or even the, the lives of the women that were in there. Um, but but I often felt with a lot of the women sort of like, wow, this could she could be my mom or she could be my sister. Um, or the experiences in her life uh, have been one where she has been. Uh, exploited, taken advantage of by often, you know, frequently men in society, uh, grew up in sort of like those critical years where you're learning how to be wise or a moral human and develop just basic skills for life. Those years where basically she was not cared for, or was exploited or, or harmed or, or neglected, uh, wasn't able to get access to um, uh, decent lawyers to argue their case. Um, and weren't necessarily by any means, right? Like the, uh, the morally vile people that sort of deserve just to be locked up into prison because they were evil or something along those lines. So there was an element, at least for me, by being a guest on their turf and entering into relationships with them that, you know, for me was, um, 
like profoundly humanizing of them uh, uh, and just able to hear their own encounters, um, their own their own experiences, their own then reading of scripture as well and the insights that they brought to the text and the dignity that they felt um, both when uh, when uh, uh, we would come in to do this uh, once a week sort of class with them uh, was profound and it you know stimulated me at least to do more thinking and reading and uh, research thoughts, uh, uh, thought provoking kind of work in terms of, uh, the stigmatized group of those who are incarcerated in, in our society. Um, uh, uh, so that maybe that would just be sort of, you know, one of the calls of the book is, um, don't take stereotypes of other people or, uh, um, stigma, stigmatized groups as a means of sort of labeling all kinds of people with a certain negative stereotype. Um, they're real people and real humans and have their own experiences that, uh, um, uh, are worth knowing and getting to know about and, uh, might provide an opportunity for you as their guest to, uh, to be benefited by, uh, them and to, to learn from them and to look for ways, uh, to partner, uh, should your church, wherever it find itself to be, should your church be in a, uh, an environment or a situation where it can engage in some reflection upon who are the stigmatized, who are the stereotyped, uh, in our community, in our neighborhood and, uh, what might the gospel, uh, what might the hospitality of Jesus have to say about, uh, about that. Thanks, Josh. That's a profoundly humanizing and life-giving sort of final wrap-up statement for us. I appreciate it very much. Well, I've really enjoyed, yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I think your book's especially timely. It's thoughtful. It's wise. It's biblical. I hope listeners are going to be quick to pick up a copy. Josh, thanks, thanks for being with me. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you this afternoon. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. Today I've been speaking with Joshua Jip about his new book, Saved by Faith and Hospitality, published by Erdman's in 2017. There's a link on our website, www.onscript.study. Until next time, thanks for listening. You've been listening to On Script, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.